There was never a question about Chadwick Boseman's ability to take on the greats. He was our Jackie Robinson, our James Brown, our Thurgood Marshall, our King T'Challa. Writer Soraya Nadia McDonald called him a griot among thespians. And it's true. He embodied all of those characters because he understood purpose, something he talked about in his 2018 commencement speech at his alma mater, Howard University. You would rather find purpose than a job or a career. Purpose crosses disciplines. Purpose is an essential element of you. It is the reason you are on the planet at this particular time in history. Your very existence is wrapped up in the things you are here to fulfill. 43. You know, the age of 43 feels so in between. We spend our early years trying to prove to people what we're capable of doing, and the other half of life, if we're lucky, showing the world how it's done. Chadwick, all before the age of 43, was able to do both while also battling colon cancer. His death is so painfully upsetting, and yet it is a wake-up call if there ever was one. It is time for you to go see a doctor. I'm Tanya Mosley. That's what we're taking on on this episode of Truth Be Told. Dear Truth Be Told. Dear Truth Be Told. Dear Truth Be Told. Dear Truth Be Told. I really need your help. I need your help. I need your help. We've all got stories. Friends grossly neglected, misdiagnosed, or ignored by doctors. Family members dealing with chronic conditions but are afraid to get it checked out. Or maybe all of the above describes you. The truth is, though, Chadwick Boseman's death, while shocking, is all too common. Black Americans have the highest death rate and shortest survival rate of colorectal cancer of any racial group in the United States. There are a lot of reasons for it, but one of the most important ones is late diagnosis. By the time we get to a doctor, it's just too late. Our wise ones this week are two guys literally working to save our lives. Dr. Italo Brown is an emergency medicine physician and clinical instructor at Stanford University Hospital. And he's been on the front lines treating people with COVID-19 over these last few months. And Jamil Lacey is the founder of Trap Medicine. It's a nonprofit that focuses on using barbershops to help address the health inequities of black men and boys. He's also in medical school. When we sat down to talk, he had just gotten out of class. I started our conversation by asking Dr. Brown about Chadwick Boseman's passing. That was a, that's a tough blow. Um, when you interact with patients who have um, like severe illnesses and, and the conversation you have with them is usually built around not just mortality in the sense of like being finite, uh, but also being infinite, like living as w- robustly as you can and doing the most that you can with the time that you have. And so when I think about this loss, uh, I am automatically eschewed to seeing how robustly he lived in the way that he took that pain, internalized it, and gave us something that lifted up an entire community at once. It's just Mm -hmm. beyond, it's mind-blowing to think that that's what happened. Jamil? When I first heard the news, I obviously was shocked, just like everybody else. Um, 
you have this cultural icon in our community um, as a result of, you know, his his roles in a, a number of films. But also, like, he's one of us, right? He went to HBCU. He went to Howard. You know, he navigated his way through Hollywood. Um, he took on roles that really depicted us in very positive light. These are things that, like, we all know individuals who are on that path to becoming great at whatever they do. We know mm-hmm. what that is like, what that requires. And we know when I found out that, one, he was he was diagnosed when it was already stage three cancer, right? And so, um, which means he had been impacted by this for a while before he found out. And he decided to just live. And that's one of the things that I, I pride myself on. Um, and I think as Black men, we often have to, um, is we have to maximize the time that we have in this physical realm because we, it, we don't have the luxury of being able to say, you know, in five years, I want to see myself here, right? Yeah. Like we living for today. <laughs> a lot of us are living for this hour. So it's just a reminder for me to just live. And it's also a reminder that like, regardless of how much money you make, how much education you acquire, like black people are always at risk because of racism. And and people will say, well, how do you connect racism to Chadwick Boseman's case? Trust me, along the path of where he found out that he was diagnosed, there was some sort of form of structural racism that he encountered. Trust me. Without a doubt. I want both of you to break that down because you're so right. To get to the point where someone who is his age is diagnosed with stage three, that means a massive breakdown. Absolutely. The the first things that I think about are the fact that the general recommendation is for uh, all people to be screened at 50 years old, whereas Mm -hmm. for blacks, it is 45. But it can even be earlier than that. And the, the act of advocating for yourself to get that screen earlier is an example of structural racism, of, of systemic racism, the, and, and seeing how implicit biases play out here, because you can walk into a provider's office and say, I think I need to get a colonoscopy. And they say, you don't need no colonoscopy, because they don't understand the way that it decimates the people in our community. They don't understand that fear plays a factor into that and how much it actually took for a person to get to the point where they were okay with asking their doctor for an exam. So like these things compound and calcify. And what you end up with is this like kind of like resonating distrust or mistrust in the system, this resonating like multi-layer oppression of people who don't have resources or who are underinformed and lack health literacy and lack uh, proper access. I don't know about you all, but prior to me being in medical school or me being a physician, I did not know any black gastroenterologists. You couldn't tell me someone can, you know, I can just give them a call and they'd tell me what a colonoscopy actually was Mm -hmm. and what these screening tests actually do. I don't want to like monopolize the time, but those are the first things that come out of my mind. You're not monopolizing the time. This is the time. This is what this conversation is about. Jamil. Yeah. I mean, the American Cancer Society, they came out with a report and it showed that the highest rates of colorectal cancer in the U.S. are among black people. And we think about the risk factors for why people get colorectal cancer. If you think of just, I mean, just think about logically diet. (laughs) Like if we just, Mm. if we just make a very general connection between diet and health outcome, we know that we live in communities that are that are food deserts, right? Mm-hmm. 
And so to me, it's no surprise that we have these the highest rates of colorectal cancer up, aside from like not having insurance, um, medical bias, aside from these guidelines that don't allow people dictate when your insurance will kick in to pay for a screening. Right. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. If you're trying to get a screening, like right now, if I'm, I'm, I'm 36 years old, if I try to go get screened for colorectal cancer, that's that's coming out of my pocket. Like yeah, my they won't do it because, because of what that. the... Wow. So, okay. Because, you know, there's been a big push since Chadwick died to get people to to get screenings. I mean, and I want to talk to you guys about your efforts that you've been doing for quite a while. But you're telling me that if you're 36 and you go to the doctor and you say, I just would like for you to, I'd like to get a colonoscopy, it will come out of your pocket because you're not at the age when it's recommended of 45. Well, what I've been told, yes. And what I've been told is to just lie. We're at the point now where we have to lie about our symptoms in order for doctors to do the proper due diligence to ensure that we don't have cancer. And that is a problem. So so break that down for me, Jamil. When you go into the doctor's office, you have to make the decision to maybe make your symptoms worse than they are in the moment to be able to get this call. Oh, for sure, because like a the doctor doesn't want that on their note. At, the, at a patient said, oh, I was I had blood in my stool, I have abdominal pain, I have a family history of colorectal cancer. Oh, no, if that's in my note, like, I have to make sure that you are getting the, I mean, for me as, as, right as a future care. physician, yeah. that's what I'm thinking in my head is I have to make sure this person is getting the, the proper referral to a, to a specialist, right? Italo, you were shaking your head yeah. on this. So, I mean, the first thing is that you you have to understand, like, there are measures that people are going by on the provider side, uh, and that is directly tied to reimbursement, directly tied to how they are being compensated. And so there are incentives to do certain things and incentives to not pursue certain things on both ends. I do worry that the complaints that are made by black patients historically are under treated as their severity is not taken to the same degree as if they weren't black. You know, you can have mm-hmm. a person come in and say, I'm in pain. And uh, depending on the color of their skin or their their insurance profile, that complaint can be uh, not taken seriously. So imagine coming in and saying, I have belly pain. And you're really talking about having a lesion along some part of your colon. And they just say, mm-hmm. oh, this is indigestion. We'll give you some antacids. You know, you need to stop eating terrible food and they send you home. Like this happens all the time. Um, Asking for a scope, uh, the process of getting that scope, the process of having insurance that is going to cover it. And and as Jamil said, like I know several people who have been told to to essentially to make it seem more severe than it is just so that a person is cornered into ordering those exams when that's mm-hmm. not the way that medicine should work. It should work in a way that is forward thinking and you're trying to get ahead of these issues before they develop and manifest. Unfortunately for black patients, you spend more of your time trying to convince somebody that your complaints are real and authentic and your desire to have increased health literacy is genuine and not so much because you're trying to con or game the system. Like that is a genuine implicit bias that exists among providers, mm-hmm. among gatekeepers to healthcare, and we have to do a better job at putting a check on that.
I just, um, side note, I feel like I just want to wrap both of you all in bubble wrap and protect you so that you can have a long career in medicine and really impact and influence the next generation of doctors coming in because it is so powerful to have you as two black men in medicine thinking in this way and thinking so intentionally about your patients and our community. I wanted to quickly make a comment on that. Like, so Jamil and I have known each other for years. Like we were both, I was 17 when I first met Jamil. Really? How did you guys meet? (laughs) Yeah, we met at Morehouse College. I met in the first week of uh, uh, Morehouse and we were on a step team together for, and spent a lot of time in our first year, that very formative portion of our lives. And so, uh, you know, I trust this man with everything and being able to come to the same conclusions about our healths, our personal healths, as well as the communities that we come from, with Jamil coming from Northern California as well, we had so many overlaps. And Mm -hmm. I just have been able to bounce these ideas back and forth between him for a number of years until he came with trap medicine. And I initially was like, you know, I'm on board, automatic. Hmm. And trap medicine for folks means trust, research, access, and prevention. You all go into barbershops You provide not just health screenings for customers, but you train barbers to provide health care information. How did this idea come about? I grew up in the barbershop um, and it was one one day I remember being at Harold's Barbershop in Berkeley. And Harold was um, giving a, a demonstration on how to turn a latex glove into a condom if you didn't have it available. Mm. <laughs> and while his methods needed some refining. I saw an opportunity there. I mm. saw how, how men gravitated toward the education that he was providing. Like it was comedic, it was funny, it was, but it was educational and it was real. But mm-hmm. what I realized was that the barbershop is a space and a venue that men are appreciated. Men can be wrong. Men can seek knowledge. And so the barbershop really represented the type of space that I felt men would feel comfortable to talk about stress, to talk about diet, to talk about relationships, talk about death and mourning, and to get screened for these different um, conditions. And so the barbershop is just one of those powerful spaces and assets in our community that we have to continue to leverage. I know. And, you know, in the midst of COVID, they're not the spaces right now, but they will continue and always be the spaces Um what did it look like? And, and tell me, just just paint the picture for me a little bit about what the pilot looked like, what you experienced with in a barbershop. We were in a we were in Oakland, in East <laughs> Oakland. Uh, shout out to um, Legends Barbershop in East Oakland. Itala was sitting on the couch, literally providing like health information to everybody in the shop, one on one in a group. Like it didn't matter. We also had a conversation about a number of things that impact our health. So there was there were conversation didn't I've, sometimes didn't even like directly address health needs. It talked about mm. financial wellness, right? It talked about mm. gentrification and the role that the housing crisis has played in people's ability to to be healthy, <laughs> you know, and like it's like those types of structural and macro issues that get people to then see the connection between, you know, gentrification and housing crisis and stress and hypertension, because those make no mistake, those things are connected. In addition to that, we were also just able to to train the barbers and get them to talk about, you know, 
hypertension and, and diabetes. And so we worked with a number of barbershops and just training them on the basics of um, of hypertension. Like, how do you talk to your client about like, what is the normal range for blood pressure? You know, and, and mm-hmm. just get them to get comfortable with the, the language. We don't want to change the culture of the shop as far as like coming in and just be, being very sterile and clinic. You want to use that culture to be able to have these conversations, yeah. right? And that's Absolutely. our mission is to just lever- yeah. leverage the culture. In that same session, we had uh, a person who we diagnosed with malignant hypertension and sent mm. her in to get checked by a physician because her blood pressure was like 230 over 100 and something when we che- when we screened her uh, and she was c- talking about having vision problems over the last few weeks mm-hmm. so all of these are like just random occurrences we talked to someone about like open use of of uh, prescription opioids and trying to talk to them about the dangers because at the time it's like there's a ton of, of uh, rap lyrics that were uh, glorifying the use of these drugs as coping mechanisms. And so unpacking that mm-hmm. with young men and then even had a, a young guy there who had uh, lost his brother, I would say, several weeks earlier and was contemplating not just homicide, but suicide. And so being mm-hmm. able to have these conversations, uh, all of that mm-hmm. being accented by a free haircut and having interaction with brothers who actually cared about you and were able to link you with resources created the substance straight for something extremely powerful. Now, this model is not brand new. You know, they've been doing barbershop interventions since the early 80s, late 70s, particularly around cardiovascular health. The problem is not many of these interventions have explored uh, going into the realm of mental health. Not many have tried to break down certain stigma or create the barbershop itself as its own entity where you can get resources as far as health literacy, education around business or entrepreneurship, uh, as well as support network, for example, like having mental health um, workers or therapists who can access patients directly from those pools. I think that that is what set Trap Medicine apart in terms of its goals and outlook. You know, I'm thinking about this moment we're in where we're not as connected as we, we have been able to be in the past, but we're thinking now more than ever the importance of health and each other. I mean, what happened with Chadwick, we're all thinking about the mortality of our loved ones. And what advice would you give on how we can replicate this in our own lives in this moment when we don't have the powers of physical connection to be in a barbershop, to be in front of each other, to to just put eyeballs on each other, to say, hey, I can look at you and tell you're not okay, or to have these conversations about physical health or mental health. It's funny you say that. Uh, Jamil and I, that was one of the first things that we acknowledged when COVID-19 started. We started saying, how do you keep black people or how do you make us more interconnected? Because you're stripping away all of the things that we've learned to uh, lean on or in the mm-hmm. ways that we've unpacked trauma and the ways that we uh, address our day to day stressors uh, have been stripped from us. So, I mean, initially we started hosting our own sessions. We started having meditation sessions via Zoom where we were bringing mm-hmm. brothers into the space who had never meditated before just to talk about the effect of COVID-19 on their day-to-day activities. I mean, imagine being in a room with a yogi uh, as well as like a computer programmer, a physician, a student, and then you're Mm -hmm. all sharing uh, in a very vulnerable and real way the way that this is affecting you. And so Mm -hmm. we just built upon that. And I think that to answer your question, and I'll let Jamil tag in, 
The goal has to be uh, wellness, your physical, spiritual, mental well-being. And to do that, we have to build in like clear exercises, clear uh, mechanisms to check in on one another. And part of that has to be tethered to other folks who have resources, who have access and who can help navigate those things. And so we serve Mm. as community liaisons in that fashion, but we're also very much so a part of that tapestry. It's one of the positives is that we've had people from all walks of life tuning in on Instagram. I mean, people are mm. on social media all day. So right. we no know how to use social media oh, yeah. to black folks. That's one thing we <laughs> yeah, we, we really know how to do it. Mobilize though, quickly. We mobilize. Yeah. I'm telling you, I, I mean, me and Italo were texting one minute. We had a flyer the next ready to go <laughs> right. on everything. <laughs> What do you suggest is the best way for people to advocate for themselves when when they go to the doctor's office? A lot of people are now really taking this advice that you all are giving to heart because we're just seeing so much happen with our people. There's a phrase that I use and that I I challenge a lot of my patients or people who I would consider are underinformed to use. I say say this directly to a physician. What would you say to your family member? Like I, I challenged the, the patient to put it on the physician as if they were talking to a family member because they often forget uh, and, and they create that that distance because of emotional fatigue or fatigue from seeing too many patients that these people are like a part of a family and mm-hmm. are tasked with uh, making complex decisions. And so if I'm walking in the room and I'm with a doctor and I don't feel like the doctor is 100% giving me the attention that I need or deserve, I would say, if I were your family member, what would you say to me? Sorry. How would you approach mm-hmm. this? And, mm-hmm. and that sometimes catches provi- providers off guard and they'll take a step back and be like, all right, let me really assess yeah. how I'm going to approach this. Hmm. Jamil. I think that is a that's a great question. Um, I think we have to acknowledge that there's a power differential uh, immediately as a, when a patient approaches a doctor or approaches any healthcare provider. Like there's a knowledge gap, there is a resource gap, and there's an access gap, and we have to acknowledge that that gap exists. And patients need to know that they are just as empowered as the physician. Right. Mm. This physician cannot make any decisions about your care that you don't consent to. If people don't have access to a black doctor, like go on a Instagram, type in black doctor, find the first black doctor you see and just DM them and just ask them questions. Like, I guarantee you they are going to respond. I think that that's one way to do it. Um, and then I think the other way is just to is to is to be very diligent about understanding that, like, yo, this we only got one life. Right. So if I know that a lot of men in general have some like fear around the prostate exam, even though it's a blood test now, have fear around, you know, the the colonoscopy. Like we have to get. I mean, and I understand it. Trust me, I understand why people are hesitant and fearful uh, of medicine and in general. But we only have one life, y'all. I wanted to make one more comment about that. For folks who are employed, you can also apply pressure upstream on your benefits groups to demand that they provide you with 
people who like the benefits have access to providers of color. Uh, That's so important can, what you're saying, <laughs> yeah. because I don't think people even know that they have the power you to do. do what you're saying. You can ask that. Yeah. You can uh, request that they uh, provide you with strategic plans on how they're going to increase their provider panel of color. You can also request that there are reviews around or, or rather that they uh, try to put in place uh, navigators who can help you with some of these tougher questions. For example, imagine trying to plan end of life care for a family member. You know, that's mm-hmm. difficult, especially within the black mm-hmm. community. You know, say you have a, a parent right now who uh, is more at higher risk of dying because of COVID-19 and you need to have those conversations that are uncomfortable right. and you're employed yeah. and you can say, why don't you all have people in place who can help me figure this out. And that would turn a very clear spotlight on the blind spots and lack of equity that exists within the corporate structures of, of the jobs that we work. Can I add one more thing? Yes, absolutely. I just want to We're getting free medical advice. We're talking just, to doctors here on the show. Absolutely. I just want to encourage everybody to vote. Mm. That part. Say Get it again. Register to vote. <laughs> Get registered to vote and vote. Because a lot of what we're talking about are decisions that have been made at an executive level, at a legislative level. And so I don't want to sound like a broken record, but get out and vote. That's something that you can do to advocate for yourself and your community. That's a record we need to hear, Jamil. And understanding that process has to be uh, a corollary. In fact, I could bring up study after study that shows the clear association between civic engagement and health outcomes. There is a clear association. The more engaged you are in terms of civic stuff, whether it's being a part of a political action group or political party, voting consistently, there is a clear positive association with improved health outcomes. The literature shows it. Atalo, we're all still grieving Chadwick and um, we will for quite a long time. But what he's left for us is his legacy his movies, the inspiration, but also it's sort of a call to action for us and really taking our health seriously. Uh, I agree. I think there were so many things about Chadwick that were understated uh, in, in terms of his approach to life, his pathway into being a, a, a household name, and then even the way that he championed his, his people. But as we watched, you know, him captivate the masses, we learned a little bit about ourselves through every single role that he played, through every single element of his story. He poured everything he had, pushed his entire body through endless amounts of pain that we can't even fathom to give us masterpieces, to create this body of work that speaks to black people's resilience, their beauty, the the fact that they are multidimensional, and that we are survivors even within that. Uh, And so I think when I reflect on the way that this is going to impact people's outlook on their own healths, I think that we have crossed a one-way valve. We're not going to go backward Mm -hmm. into uh, thinking that our healths are not significant parts of our life and and the way that we operate. I think that we're going to see that every single person has some choice to make this important 
and that we have to have accountability across the table because just as much as we want to see that next movie that has him in it where he's representing us, we need to be present to see those things. And so it'll be a constant reminder of that. Tamil. The last thing I would add is I don't want anybody to to think that um, Chadwick was not fighting for his life. Mm. He didn't just succumb to cancer. He was fighting. He was getting treated. He was doing everything that he could to stay alive. And despite every advancement in medicine, um, this is just where we are. And like, when I think about just like health disparities and how they impact black people, man, it's just, no matter how much money we have, no matter how much fame we acquire, we are always at risk. And um, my message to people is just, just fight like Chadwick. Hmm. Atalo and Jamil, you two are such treasures. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this. And, and I, um, y'all got to let me know where you're practicing once you're, once you're done with everything. Because we deserve doctors like you. <laughs> so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, and thank you for this platform, for what you're doing. This is important. I'm, I'm blessed to uh, have shared this time with you. Uh, and as always, when Jamil and I link up and are able to talk this, it just causes a cross inspiration. And I'm glad to, to be present today. That's Dr. Italo Brown and Jamil Lacey of Trap Medicine. Like Jamil said, check out what your insurance covers. Help a family member or loved one figure out what they qualify for. If you don't have insurance, we're going to have a list of resources on our Instagram and Twitter pages on ways you can get medical care. Make that appointment with your doctor, follow through and see that doctor, and fight like Chadwick. You know, I want all of us to be in it for the long haul, and that means we've got to pay attention to our health. So over the next few shows, we're going to focus on how to keep ourselves and our loved ones strong. On our next episode, activist and author Alice Wong will talk about why we also need to center people with physical disabilities during this pandemic in the Black Lives Matter movement. And then writer Bassie Ickby gets real about mental health and her own battle with bipolar disorder. And if you have a question you want a wise one to help out with, let us know at truthbetold at kqed.org, or you can find us on Twitter or Instagram at truthbetoldkqed. Truth Be Told is produced by Susie Racho, Issa Mendoza, and Katie McMurrin. KQED's leadership team includes Erica Aguilar, Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. A big thanks to Kiana Mogadam. Truth Be Told is a production of KQED in San Francisco. I'm Tanya Mosley. 